Welcome back to the PropTech Ramble. I'm Michael Grant. Hi everyone, I am Charlotte. Uh, yeah, so I'm Sam. <laughs> <laughs> um, plug away. PropTech for us as, as Metricus uh, is, again, it's not just new, it is legacy as well. Yeah, I think I've got to say it's about the people, so like making things easier for the people in the building and also people who run the building. And if it doesn't do that, then what's the point? <laughs> <laughs> and I think a lot of what PropTech does is try and make get those old buildings and turn it into something that's a bit new. That's what it's all about, really, apart from me rambling on like I'm doing now. So uh, <laughs> That's why it's called PropTech. Right? <laughs> that's very true. Very true. <laughs> Hi everyone, um, welcome to the final episode of the PropTech Ramble of the year. Um, I'm Sam Hall, Head of Technology at Metricus. It's my pleasure to be joined today by Nick Durkin, uh, Field CTO at Harness, and Stephen Lyme, VP and GM for EMEA, also at Harness. Um, we're going to be talking about something a little bit different this week. You know, normally we've been talking about property technologies quite directly. This is going to be more focused on, as well as PropTech, how do you actually get software you know, that we're all using to the cloud? How do you actually do this whole complex delivery stuff? Or maybe it's actually not that complex. Um, anyway, so first of all, it'd be great. You know, Nick, if you introduce yourself. Um, sure. From there. Nick Durkin, field CTO, uh, Harness. Uh, it was employee number nine, uh, been there quite a while. And uh, before that came from the large financial institutions, um, built a lot of uh, intellectual property around um, fraud prevention, mobile authentication, data aggregation, but you know, ultimately started life as a sysadmin. So been, been in the trenches uh, many times. You felt the pain of delivering I have, software. I've literally been that guy who gets blamed for everything. Yeah. Absolutely. It's, like it's burned down. It's your fault. It, it literally, it, it must be. I had to prove my innocence many, many times. Yeah. And uh, hi, and thank you for firstly for inviting us on uh, the season finale. Uh, appreciate yeah. it. And so Stephen Lyon, I'm the, the VP and GM here in Amir. Uh, haven't been in harness as long as Nick, which is why Nick has that amazing vest, and I don't. However, I do look forward to, to getting mine in the future when I've earned the right. Um, so I've been in harness for about a year, and, and my responsibilities are to help grow. Uh, the business across Europe, Middle East, and Africa. Um, previously, I was at Cloudera for a long time, you know, doing the, the same role, and IBM and SaaS, and so I've been in technology companies for, for most of my working career. So it's great to spend a little bit of time here with you today. Great. Well, I guess probably the best place to start is just to give a brief overview for everyone, you know, in a nutshell, how, how Harness works. You know, sure. What does it do? How do we deliver value to the to clients? Yeah, yeah, great, great question. So Harness started life as continuous delivery as a service, and we think about you know, CI and CD, so continuous integration being really getting code to artifact. And then we think about continuous delivery, we think about it being from artifact to customer. This is really what, what in, um, in for, sure. for everyone, what, yeah. what is an artifact? Yeah, so if you think about an artifact, so any type of software you want to deploy, so think about that jar, the war, the container, the uh, really anything that you deploy on your, even your laptop, would yeah. be the artifact to install, and it's really about automating that portion when it becomes something you can deploy or something yeah. you can install, and really automating that for a business to make sure that it gets to production, yeah. and it gets to your customers in a meaningful way, so they can actually use that software. So the artifact is kind of like a, the version, I guess, of that particular application, you know, exactly whatever it may be. Yep, that's exactly it. And, uh, and then we broaden that to actually handle the whole software delivery lifecycle. So mm -hmm. from the moment the developer's writing code, all the way through to deploying that uh, to the different servers, uh, and even understanding the costs that are involved with the cloud costs as you're and where you're deploying it. So really, the entire spectrum of the software delivery cycle. Really here to help throughout the whole the whole process. Yeah. So I think that certainly for 
for us, one of the things that's quite interesting is not just how how do you get software to you know, the cloud system, but also what happens if you need to do three, you generally have sort of three, I guess, major uh, clusters or deployments. You know, you'll have dev QA, beta production. Yep. And one of the problems you often have is that people don't remember to turn stuff off. You know, you like, you know, most developers are working eight hours a day, I hope. Um, <laughs> and then they leave them on for another, I don't know what, 16 hours. So you are still paying for that. You know, if you're running that on AWS or Azure or GCP, that means that two thirds of your costs are just chucking money out the window. Um, Massive amount of waste. Yeah. And, and really this is, you know, when you think about harness through this whole platform, it's designed to automate all the pieces that any of your engineers hate, which would be even that understanding when people are coming to the office, when they're leaving. Let the machine and let the machine learning understand what that looks like so it can do it for you automatically. When yeah. your folks leave the office, let's automatically bring those down. When they come back in and try to use the services, let's bring them up for you. So yeah. you're really cutting 60, 70% of that cost just by literally auto-stopping all of the technologies that you don't need to have running during the evening or during off hours or during that random holiday that pops up. Yeah. Right? Massive amount of cost savings for customers. And it makes it easier as well to surface it to, you know, to your finance teams. Because often, you know, cloud stuff sounds all scary, right? <laughs> it sounds like we're talking about a dark art about containers and artifacts. It's, it's not that complicated. Well, it is complicated, but the finance of it's relatively easy. So you can get people involved in it. Yeah, I think one of the things, um, and we've been talking quite a bit today about confidence mm. and the ability to give people in different roles confidence to do that role well and to do it exceptionally well. And so whether you're uh, the CFO and having confidence that, you are controlling the costs costs within an organization you know, responsibly, but not impacting the revenue growth of that organization and making sure um, that it's running as effectively and as efficiently as it can. If you're in a developer role, you want to just be able to develop yeah. and not worry about those things in the back end and know that they're taken care of. And if we think about that through the lens of, of Harness, what we're trying to do and what we're enabling our customers to do is to go fast, so deploy mm. self software faster, go through those iterations, but stay safe. So know that if something breaks, we've got you. It's okay. Ideally, we catch it before it goes into production. But if it does go into production, that happens. And we'll, we can all roll you back. We can roll you forward. But we keep you safe. And we're doing that um, with lots of visibility, granular visibility from a, an audit perspective. So again, you know, whatever role you, you have in the organization, you know that you can get the data. And you know, we talk a lot about data. And then people provide the context to that data. So I think that's really important. And then, of course, as you were just highlighting, as you deploy faster, then typically those costs go up. So how do we just make sure we're optimizing that spend responsibly but still supporting the goals of the business? Yeah. The way I'd even put it is we make it easy for people to do the right thing. We make it hard for them to do the wrong thing. And if you think about it, the vision of going to the cloud sounds great, but only if you leverage it appropriately. So if you're yeah. using the resources when you need them, then it's cost effective. If you leave them on 24-7, it's not. Yeah, exactly. And I guess so for... Um, could you give like a brief overview of the difference? I think often AIML, people say it literally like that. They're like AIML, two completely different things, really. I mean, they're in the same sort of arena, but they're quite, you know, different approaches, really. Absolutely. Would, yeah, just give a brief overview of what that, what I, that is from your perspective. I think a lot of people actually say machine learning and they mean like a standard deviation. Yeah, they like mean math. Like they literally like math. And the yeah, problem yeah. is, like they that, talk about algorithms. Yeah, that is not that's not machine learning. So no. machine learning, whether it's supervised or unsupervised, and we use both, right? So this might be something like natural language processing, where we can 
allow the machine to know what English language looks like and actually pull data out of it and really understand. Um, or where you can actually give it feedback. So you can, you can actually give feedback to say, hey, here's neural feedback. Is this good? And start allowing it to learn. And that's supervised machine learning. But again, these are taking a massive stack of multiple algorithms together that allow really uh, a computer to start thinking like a human. Mm -hmm. the, the problem is that a lot of times people will say AI and they actually mean machine learning models. Yeah. And it's not until the machine's truly thinking and growing by itself that it becomes artificial intelligence. And so oftentimes they use the term neural networks. And this is where you design uh, and build and, and train models that actually then can learn on their own. And so when we talk about AI, it's really about you know, giving context, but then allowing the machine itself to continually learn and update that same context. Mm -hmm. So the same way that a child, right, you start playing with a toy and it can't fit the square in the circle, now it starts taking the circle. As you learn, the brain continues to figure, okay, the circle goes here. Same with that would be artificial intelligence where it's actually starting to learn on its own. I'm not having to train. Yeah. And this is where we use a massive amount of machine learning to do what your best engineers do and a little bit of AI. Um, but that little bit of AI makes a difference of, you know, whether we give you false positives or not, because we can start thinking like things like your best engineers do. The, the analogy I think I often use is like, um, I don't know if you have this in America, but you know, when you go to the dentist and you've got like those machine, those things where you put the coin in the top and it kind of goes down like little tracks and then yeah. it goes into one of the holes. And you can kind of, you know, you know, you can put it in one or go over here, you go over here. AI to me or machine learning is more like if that is getting retrained constantly so that you're getting the result and the outcome at the bottom that you want. Yeah. But it's the world's most complicated coin drop machine. <laughs> and, and Nick, why do our customers care about ML and AI? Like, it's, you know, as you highlighted, mm -hmm. Sam, it's kind of the buzzwords. Everybody says they've got some ML and AI in their, their tech solution. It's going to revolutionize your life. But in the, in the space of software delivery, why do our customers care, Nick, about ML sure. and AI? It's actually the same reason that we cared about mechanical muscle in the early 1900s. So we used to do everything with horse and we, we used, you know, everything, we would travel through the streets and horses, we would, we would farm with them. And then we built mechanical muscle, which made all of our jobs easier. Right? We took away the worst parts of the jobs. And the reality is that's exactly what we're doing here. So with our AI and ML, I'm taking away all of the worst part of an engineer's job. No one loves babysitting a deployment and making sure it works. No one loves waiting for tests to run. No one loves, like you said, turning off that infrastructure and making sure it's on and having somebody come into the office late now to turn it back on for them. Taking care of that for them using artificial intelligence and ML, mm -hmm. it literally removes the worst parts of their job. We're not replacing people, right? I'm literally replacing the worst parts of their job so they can go do what they're best at, empower them to do what they're best at. And for sort of, uh, for high performing you know, DevOps teams, how often would you think that they could, you know, how quickly can you start to deploy code? Like how quickly can you start to push new features to people? Sure. I think, um, you know, with Harness specifically, we'll go and actually install our software with a customer or a prospect, and in a few hours, you've gone from literally nothing to mm. deploying new code instantly. And then beyond that, from your second deployment forward, you're starting to use the AI to think about it like mm. your best engineer, so now you're gaining value on your second deployment. So it's quick time to value because you don't have to script things, you don't have to write things, you don't have to have the hard stuff, Harness handles that for you. And then after you start deploying, we'll handle the, again, the hard bits that no one wants to deal with. And once you get to that sort of state where you're now pushing features essentially constantly, how do you make sure that you can keep your operational teams, your product teams, your marketing teams, all actually still synchronized essentially with your development team? How do you make sure you're not getting features that are, you know, maybe something new that no one recognizes? Absolutely. So this, this brings into what we call feature flagging. And 
some folks would call it database toggles or um, um, feature management. And it's really the ability to control after a software is deployed, mm -hmm. maybe not all the features are required by a specific customer or a specific region or a specific geo. And so I want to make sure that when we do it, the operations teams are ready for it and we can align. So yes, the software is deployed, but you can separately then control features. So now I can say I want this feature for a small subset. And I want the, the ops team to be aware that it's coming. Mm -hmm. We can make sure it's there. And then we can verify that it comes out. And so now it doesn't have to be large, complex deployments to give your customers the features they want. It can literally be a toggle yeah. for a specific subset. And it can still follow that same automation and that same verification. So the intention is, is we want to make it easier and easier um, for the engineers to get that code base out, that feature out. Um, but do it when it's valuable for the business, mm -hmm. right? Not when it can affect, uh, you know, possible outcomes and, and, and when we have to worry about it during deployment time, but when it's beneficial for the business. Yeah, and I guess that also, it helps push the power of those feature releases more towards the people who are actually doing it on a daily basis. Because let's be honest, DevOps people tend to be sitting at a computer somewhere else, not dealing with customers, not de well, hopefully not anyway. <laughs> um, not dealing with customers, dealing with how to get code to production, but that's what they're thinking about. They're not thinking about how do I get this into my customers' hands? How do I get it into ops hands properly? So if you have a feature flagging system, such as Harness, um, you could yeah push that to product people, push it to marketing, marketing people. Yeah. So it's a lot more controlled. And it's just, you know, having used it, it is a super easy interface. So you know, I'm probably showing my hand a bit there, but no, it's, it's, you know, it's super easy interface, so you can you know, actually, you don't need like a huge amount of training to say, you know, let's release a new version of a, uh, I mean, I'll use an example from us, like we released a new wellness panel going from version one to version two. But of course, uh, you know, you, you want to test version two for a while while you're still having version one. We actually did all that testing, giving the powers to product, like that was not involving developers at all. They can choose, um, and, that, and that's it. You let the customers decide when they want it. Yeah. Right. You let the teams enable it when they need to, and then even then, you know, I call it a blast radius. You automatically yeah. limit the blast radius. Hey, I'm I'm purposely and 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 you know, I'm going to be purposeful with that change with a customer. Mm -hmm. We're going to make the decision to try it. If we like it, now let's expand it. Let's give it to more. Now let's bring it out to it. And if it doesn't work again, let's get it back to where it was before you started, and you don't have to write any code. Yeah. And that's if you were using a, a system that takes a massive amount of scripting and coding and com complexity, you've just added an, an entirely new code base. Why would you do that? It should make your life easier. Yeah. Right? That's the intention. Uh, I think this, the exciting thing from a business impact perspective is, um, you know, you asked about like, how, how do you make sure that the teams are in sync? Mm -hmm. I actually think it's a, a key opportunity and a great opportunity for the, the, te the teams to get strong together. Mm -hmm. Um, because as organizations grow, you know, fast-growing startups or large enterprises, you know, often you know, one degree of separation becomes significant over time. Whereas actually, and you know, and if you were to go and interview people in different functions, you know, there might be some frustration with it takes too long to do this, or it takes too long to do this. But actually, if you can iterate safely, so you're delivering incremental business value to your customers in a controlled way. So you know, marketing should be good with that. Finance should be good with that. Risk, you know, all of those functions should actually buy into that process, and you can go through with that quicker, which means you can innovate faster. And if you can innovate faster, you can leave your competition behind. And you know, back to the, the point I made earlier about each function should have the confidence in the process, which mm -hmm. should bring people together for a, a common purpose, which of course is to, to move fast without breaking things and drive better value for um, you know, your customers.
in the marketplace. I think the best thing for us was that, you know, the code takes as long as code takes. Like deploying it faster doesn't speed up how quickly you write code. It just speeds up how quickly you can get it to people. But yeah. the thing that was great for us with speeding up how fast we got it there and how quickly we could test it in production was that it all took three months, which is exactly as long as it's ever taken. But we actually got the first version out after a month. We, could, we were able to start actually making UX and UI changes way ahead of when we normally would have done, which would have started previously after three months. So then, you know, you have to iterate from three months onward. What actually happened is we got that feedback in after a month and released the finished thing after three. But the code still took three months, you know, and that's by we it's could that get iteration time, though, right? Yeah. It's that time of iteration it, that you can pull it back. compress, really. And that's, I think, a lot of the things we thought is uncompressible. And the reality is there's a lot that we can compress mm -hmm. if we're able to test it. Right. And I think that's the benefit. Yeah, and it often sounds scary, I think, to people when you say things like testing in production, because it sounds like, you know, I remember uh, we did a conference and someone asked, like, oh, you, so you're, you're deploying bad code? And I was like, no, no, no. <laughs> well, no, I'm not saying we're deploying, like, half-hashed code. What I'm saying is that we're pushing things that are, you know, we wouldn't release it as a general, generally available feature, but we want people to use it. We want people to test it. We want people to, you know, figure out whether this is something that they want to do. And for our scenario, you cannot, we could not have a beta setup with the breadth of data that we get from, you know, sensors coming in because it would cost a fortune. You know, going back to the cost stuff, you know, it would just cost us so much money to actually have a, a, a totally exact prod setup to beta. You can't do that. Yeah. But that's why sometimes when you go from beta to prod, things happen that are weird. <laughs> things are different in prod from beta no matter what you do. This um, is... This is actually how we even came up to offer our feature flagging uh, yeah. to our customers is because we've been feature flagging everything that we build to our customers. Yeah. If you ask me, hey, you know, Nick, we need this feature, I would give it to you first. It's not that it's to your point. It's not unbaked. It's just it's to your design. And we would yeah. iterate on it and make sure it's what you needed. And then I could release it to a larger audience of people that would like it. And once we had enough people that would say, okay, this is what we want, now we can make it generally available to the public. Yep. And that's the idea of feature flagging. And really, all of our customers said, we, we want to do what you do in your software deployments every day. Can you, can you please offer that solution for us? <laughs> and we said, why not? And feedback is a gift. So the speeder, the faster you can go through that feedback loop um, you know, with a specific customer, um, then I think you can make it better for all customers. Uh, I think that's a really important design principle. But on that point of of testing, we're trying to take that upstream as well, right, Nick, in terms of some of the things we've done around test intelligence. So I think it's mm -hmm. it's useful just to incorporate into that into the conversation. It's not just when you've gone into production and using feature management to toggle those uh, on and off, but actually trying to make that more efficient earlier in the process as well. What's your perspective? No, poking you a little bit. Poking me a little bit because it's, <laughs> it's it's something I'm passionate about because. You know, if, if I were to change the gas cap on your car, mm. you wouldn't expect me to go check every electrical switch and every electrical system in the vehicle after I did so. But the reality is, when we go change one line of code, today we run through every single test, yeah. which is, well, it's crazy. It, it takes like three hours, right? It, it, and, like, and I, and I drink day. a lot of coffee, <laughs> and I go out for lunch, and, 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 and great, and hopefully it worked. Mm. But the reality is, what if we could be more intelligent about it, right? Use AI and ML types to understand, hey, look, I don't need to run 75% of these tests because what I changed does not affect it. Really get into only tests we need. And then more importantly, what about those tests that commonly fail? Like, let's test those first. Like, fail fast. Mm. If we're going to fail, let's fail in the first five minutes, not three hours later. Uh, what if we change the test, create a new one? 
And so again, it's a thinking about it in the way that you and I would if we were thinking about it like humans, but applying that modeling to everything you do in the software delivery lifecycle. I guess it also comes back to what we said before about you know confidence is that you know I think a lot of people you do all of your tests because you're not confident that actually you'll catch you know you might have it's the source that what's the picture you see you always see on like stack stack the, overflow the fire way, in the background the fire in the background but also like you know the piece of wood that no one ever touches because it's holding up the house and see like I <laughs> like why have you never touched that code it's like well someone put it there and I don't know what it does so I've just left it <laughs> you know. <laughs> And some of that, like actually, if you were able to just test more confidently, you know, not have to run through hours and hours of tests because you're not wanting to change this very small thing, that would enable you to sort, you know, upgrade your architecture, move more quickly, you know, iterate, iterate, iterate. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so we've spoken about like a few things, like in terms of the trends across, a, you know, EMEA. Hmm. Um, what has been the sort of uptake? Do people tend to take everything? Um, they take a set of solutions. Like, how does it tend to work? Um, I think it depends where they are. Mm. And you know, one of the things that we're very conscious of is, is solving the entire you know, software delivery lifecycle journey. Yeah. But recognizing that people are at different stages in that, and therefore, um, you know, we're a platform company, but modular in its approach. And mm -hmm. so, if your challenge right now is around you know getting the artifact to the customer again, use the word customer deliberately, not production, um, then we. You know, we solve that through something we call continuous delivery. If people are still trying to, um, you know, or, or they've solved that particular problem and they're thinking about the cloud cost, and we were talking about that earlier, then you know we have some conversations around that. What we're seeing is that that um, you know, more and more of our uh, customers are adding more of our capability as they're seeing the value. Mm -hmm. um, often we'll be starting to, you know, this is the business problem we're trying to solve right now. How can Harness solve that? We recognize you've got value in lots of these other areas, yeah. and that's great. But right now, we just need to, to solve for that problem. Um, you know, that said, with, particularly with, with startups, uh, we're seeing uh, more and more, and of course, Europe has an amazing startup scene now, and, mm -hmm. and you know, people like Sequoia and Early Bird have all got you know, growing teams uh, in the region, which is great. Atomic yeah, they opened the London office about a year ago, right? Yeah, absolutely. Now um, money is coming. It's, it's uh, <laughs> uh, you know, and somebody was giving me a data point. I can't remember what it's now. 30, Thirty-seven unicorns in in the Nordics or something like that. Yes. You know, phenomenal uh, growth in in European tech startups, which is fantastic to see. Um, and so we're seeing them kind of. If you think about a startup, they they want to keep growing. They don't want to plateau and then grow again. And that's not just people. That's technology as well. And so we're seeing more of them put in something like Harness from the earlier stages across the platform so yeah. that they can just you know smooth out that growth curve and not have to have any of those plateaus as, as they scale so um we're very excited about that uh, and especially about that technology um, which of course agitates larger enterprises even more because they've got to cope with that disruption in their marketplace yeah. um and so you know obviously they move a little bit slow and they're more likely to solve a specific problem pain problem they've got at the moment for you know, extending that. So I guess some of the younger, more agile companies can take more of the capability because they're, they're able to do so. Mm -hmm. um, some of the larger enterprises need to solve specific business plans as they you know, uh, really reinvigorate their innovation and get back that flexibility and agility. Yeah. T I mean, taking away that pain of worrying about how quickly you can scale your, your, your CRCD pipeline, like how quickly can you get stuff to customers? How can you um, increase the number of regions that you're deploying to? It's such a key problem, as you know. I know as a startup, that's something that we have to worry about. Um, I don't want to worry about. <laughs> but 
you know, how do you then also make sure you control that cost? It's, it's you know, different problems come at different times. And the resourcing, um, you know, like you, yeah. we talk about there being sort of like 27 million software developers in the world. And it doesn't matter whether that's, that's a, a, fact, a factually <laughs> accurate statement directionally, there's a lot, but nowhere near enough, right? And so everybody's competing for scarcity of human resources and therefore something like Harness to be able to, you know, you described it as kind of doing some of the things that developers don't want to do. Actually, that's attractive um, for candidates in the recruitment cycle as well. It's like, hey, you know, if you can take away all of the dull stuff that doesn't really interest me and, and also not only that, but help me get my code into to the customer, I almost said production, to the customer <laughs> faster, that's hugely rewarding as a developer. Yeah. I'm, I'm having more impact for my company, which is what I want to do, right? Because like, that's why I joined in the first place. Um, so I think uh, those aspects are really, really critical, especially in an environment where you know everybody's competing for, for developer talent. So if you can enable developers to do the things that they're passionate about, mm. along with all of the other things that people care about, um, you know, when when evaluating opportunities, I think that's a plus. Yeah, I think certainly in, in Europe, well, it's market I know best as well. Is you know the compliance stuff. Taking that pain away is just, I mean, if you try and build a CICD solution yourself and build in audit logs and things like that, I mean, anyone who's ever tried it, don't try it. <laughs> don't do it. Everyone, but everyone tries it in the beginning because they, they'll go so and extend their CI tool, they'll, 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 they'll take their script runner yeah. and try to build it, they'll grab a open Google, source have a Google tools. Doc. Yeah, have a Google Doc, forgets. hey. <laughs> but, but the problem is that doesn't scale, it doesn't meet your compliance, it doesn't meet your regulatory, it doesn't yeah. meet the audit. And so you want to use a tool that's literally designed from the ground up to meet every single audit and regulatory and compliance requirement that you have. Because now you know, and this is that confidence piece that we talked about, yeah. if you can guarantee that they're following the appropriate measures, they're doing the right tests, they're meeting the right security requirements, so all those quality gate security gates are met, now you can confidently understand that what they're deploying meets your requirements. Yeah. And that gives you that ability. And with the, with audit, now you can have the reports out to the, to, the, to the auditors, to the compliance folks. To do that yourself, look, anyone can do it. And a lot of companies have. Why would you want to do it yourself? And then why would you want to do it again when you move, say, from on-premise to the cloud? Yeah. Why write it entirely from scratch? I think it's, it's super important within sort of the property technology industry that we're in because, you know, they're primarily, we were saying before, major enterprises tend to be combo, like building owner occupiers, you know, people who tend to have massive security teams where you've got to talk about how you, like, not just are you getting code to production, but how do you get it there? Like, what are the audit logs that you have? Can you show me your audit logs? Mm -hmm. You know, can you give me a system that tells me exactly what it is that you're deploying at what time? Is there a big red button that says no code today? You know, all of those things that, to be honest, you want to be focusing, well, I, know, I want to be focusing on how we make money, which is we're a property technology business, not a CICD business. So I don't want to build that because other people are spending the money to build that. You've got how many employees now? Like so yeah, a terrifying number. A terrifying number. Yeah, we're, we're, we're about 540 you employees know, right now. We don't have 540 CI/CD developers. Yes. <laughs> and, and, and 250 of them are actual developers. Yeah. So we have 250 people that live, eat, and breathe this, right? To do this for folks. So you don't have to have those seven, eight, nine, ten folks to do it. Like allow us to do it for you. And and to that point, I think you you said it best, which is, like, again, empower you guys to do what you're best at. Don't. Don't waste the time. Your stock price will not go up because you have built a really cool CI/CD 
uh, or, or a development platform. Unless we completely pivot like Slack, you know, <laughs> then, you know. Yeah, I, I think the key point there is... that's highly unlikely. That story is unique. <laughs> the key point there is it, it's not that you couldn't do it. No. But it's just not no. your business. So therefore, why would you do it? Because yeah. all you're doing then is diluting your core value. And your core value is being a pop tech company. So be good, really excel at that. And then, you know, use third-party tools like Harness to... Um, to help you do software delivery. Right? Yeah. So, and it's, it's a similar story that we tell because, you know, actually, if you look at the way you can do property technology, then really you could go and buy release a sensor that we work with and you could integrate it to a database and you can write queries. You, you can do that. Like, that's fine. But, I mean, that means you have to go and do that. You know, you're now taking away from whatever your business is, you're, you're figuring it all out and you're not taking advantage of this pool of knowledge that you can, you know, you can utilize. And you're increasing risk as well. Because, yeah, increasing you know, the risk. people who write that, to your point, they create a Google Doc that never ever gets updated, but the software does get updated, yeah. and, and then the business scales, and, and that person leaves, or those people leave, and then you've, you've created a you know, vacuum of knowledge that, um, to your point, then you end up with the, the piece of wood that's propping up the house, yeah. quite literally. Yeah. And, um, and then where do you go from there? Yeah. Um, and one thing that I've noticed with our clients, and I don't know whether you've seen this, is a sort of a, we often go through transitions, I think, in, um, com compute technology, I suppose, mm -hmm. of like private cloud, public cloud, private cloud, public cloud. And we seem, from what I've seen, to be a bit in a bit uh, people going back towards private cloud again. Have you seen Have you seen that? Like, how do you help? Um, is, do you help? I mean, I guess yeah. <laughs> at the end of the day, yeah. a, cloud, a cloud service is a cloud service from your, your perspective. Well, and, and, that, and that's the thing. A cloud service is a cloud service from our perspective, but we actually empower the people that need to care about it. Yeah. So developers shouldn't have to care whether they're deploying on-premise or they're deploying to cloud one today and cloud two tomorrow. They yeah. shouldn't have to care. And so if you leverage something like Harness, now the operations folks or, or the system folks who actually know and care about the infrastructure can help define that accordingly, so that now, again, the engineer doesn't have to care. It can be Amazon today, Google tomorrow, Azure the next, and then back on premise the following. And and the, the genuine piece here is that you shouldn't have to care. And, and your engineer shouldn't have to know the networking complexities, the security complexities of each one of those. They should be handled by the teams that know it. And I, you know, I've said it before, but you wouldn't hire you know a plumber to go to your electrical work. Yeah. Right, it just it just doesn't make sense. But we're asking developers to know no networking and security and the cloud and the and and let's empower the people that do it best, give them all the right areas to do this, and then let's allow tooling to actually handle making sure it gets to the right place in the right time. Mm -hmm. And so to us at Harness, like, we don't care whether it's on premise or whether it's a cloud. It doesn't matter to us, uh, and, and nor should it matter to your engineers. Yeah. That's that's the nirvana. Yeah, it's like cognitive load piece, right? You know, you can't focus on everything. Because it's you, it's hard. You and, could, but you know, you you won't do anything well. And you know, even, even if you could do it all, you're not going to be the best in your game. No. My, Michael Jordan was not the best baseball player, right? He was he was you pretty know, good. He, he was pretty good, but but he was you know <laughs> yeah. he wasn't Michael Jordan. The Michael he, he Jordan, the Michael of Jordan of baseball, baseball, but he was <laughs> of basketball because he spent that time and that effort. So let's 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 allow folks to do the same. Yeah, yeah. I think you're trying to build in the you you trying to mitigate your risk. Um, and therefore, by abstracting it from that, like whether it's you know cloud one, two, or three, um, let's leave it at that. Um, yeah. and, and as your business develops, changes, you know, you acquire companies who may be on a different, you know, a different cloud provider. Uh, you're likely to have at least two, if not three. 
you've still got to be able to take, uh, you know, move the levers accordingly. And you need to have the visibility to know when to move those levers. Mm -hmm. Back to that visibility, which gives you the confidence to, to make those decisions. And of course, you know, nobody wants to be locked in, uh, you know, one way or another these days. They've already got kind of lots of stories of that over the years. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and as like another, I guess, yeah, fast growing business, hmm. what's, what have been your kind of challenges as grow, you know, teams growing very quickly? which inevitably means you need more office space. You know, what have been the challenges surrounding that? Um, that's a great question. Uh, I think that, you know, firstly, we're, like many organizations, competing for talent. Um, yeah. and I think we've got a, a great brand, and I think we're, we're doing some fun stuff that, that people want to be associated with, so that's, so that's good. Um, from an office perspective, um, you know, it's, a, it's an environment that needs to continue to pivot and pivot faster. And, mm -hmm. and what I mean by that statement is that um, you know, as we're growing, we need flexibility, but we need a different style of office space. So if you take the, you know, the number of desks that we need today, we would need a disproportionate number of meeting rooms to the number of desks, vis-a-vis -vis what's typically available on, on the market today. And that seems to have rapidly changed over the last, what, two years? A hundred percent. You know, we, we don't want any individual offices, not interested, not needed, but what we do need is lots of um, you know, hybrid spaces for people to come together and interact, right? We need um, lots of hybrid meeting rooms so we can have conversations like the one we're having today where you know, we're in real life, which is fantastic, mm. um, but also, you know, people can join remotely. Like my, my the school that my girls are at, um, you know, all the classrooms are hybrid. And they've been hybrid way before COVID, and it's the headmaster's, you know, quite forward thinking and thinks that's the future, which is fantastic, um, you know, and more sustainable. So um, it's really challenging. Because yeah. landlords want long-term, unflexible leases and organizations that are fast-growing like Harness, which are great for landlords if they build that relationship, yeah. want flexibility, lots of meeting rooms, you know, shorter leases because we're growing really, really quickly and not to be locked in. Yeah. So um, I think that's part of the challenge. And then, of course, you know, understanding how our usage mm. is changing, which yeah. kind of ties into a little bit of your business. Yeah, I mean... You know, sim similarly to some of the ways you've spoken about how getting data about how stuff is deployed, that is kind of what we try and do for buildings. You know, we're trying to help people to actually get information about um, how their desk space is being used or how the meeting room is being utilized. Because we found with a lot of clients that they basically just had missized meeting rooms. You know, like sometimes you actually have more than enough meeting space, but that is just being inappropriately divided. So you can you know, putting in dividers in spaces isn't that hard usually, unless you've got a, a landlord is difficult, which sometimes happens. Um, so we can help people to be like, look, you've got this 12-person meeting room, but actually 80% of the time it's being used by 30% of people, and people tend to know this, but they can't prove it back to their CEO. So the CEO never actually wants to spend the money to redo things. They're like, well, but sometimes you do use it, right? It's like, yeah, but most of the time this is what we need. And so we can give people the data back to say, look, this is what we need so that we can actually um, function better as a business. And then maybe you use one of the many, many, many um, flexible office spaces that you can just go and hire a meeting room for 20 people when you need it, you know, but you don't need that most of the time. So this is the cloud for, for offices. I mean, if you think yeah. about it, right? When I want to need that overflow, I've got my on-premise data center and I need my overflow in the cloud and that, and, and I see this, but I can't tell you how many times I've sat in a room and I, and I got the largest conference room because every other small one was booked. It's me and two people. Yep. Yeah. And, and what should host 20? 
you know, to your point, those spaces, understanding the data, right, it's the only way we can make proper decisions. Mm -hmm. and, and without it, I think to your point, you know, I'm coming with a, with a gripe to the boss without, without any actionable information. Yeah. And so if you don't have it, how do you make a business case? Yeah, and it's uh, the, the data kind of informs the story and people tell the story. Because as you described, you know, people have their perception like their gut, um, mm -hmm. and their perception is their reality regardless, and that, that's why the data is, is so important. And of course, people will be protective, like, I don't want to give up my 20-person meeting room, yeah. you know, three times a year, that's I have cool. 20 people in that meeting room, and I've got a great big digital wall, and this is amazing. And I've got whiteboards everywhere, I know we're all very passionate about whiteboards. We do love whiteboards. We might have to save that for a, a, a future session <laughs> dedicated to the future of whiteboarding. Um, but I think, yeah, the data is critical. Yeah. Uh, to help inform that and for us, yeah, as we continue to scale and grow, what is it that we actually need? And at the moment, that's it's more gut based. Mm. And the kind of next level that we then do is to try and sort of enrich some of that data with more data points. So we will put things like indirect quality sensors to those meeting rooms so that then you can also, as well as just knowing how many people are there, you can look at maybe how is CO2 trending because as, you go, as CO2 goes up, your cognitive performance goes down. You know, so you actually start to get to a point where you're making worse and worse decisions. So you need to be able to understand that, feed it back again, feed that loop, feedback loop into something like an HVAC system. So you pump more fresh air in, and now you can start to, you know, have more productive meetings, like like the dream of everyone wants. <laughs> this this is continuously so, delivering for buildings. It's continuous right? delivery for buildings. It is. Yeah. It genuinely is taking the yeah. data and using the insights, and then automatically. Not just you know taking the insights and getting recommendations, but taking action. And I think yeah. when we think about whether it's software delivery, whether it's you know in the building, that's the intention. It's not just to get the data. The data is great. Yeah. It's not even just gleaning insights off data. The only time it's actually truly valuable is that we can take action on it. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's the most important piece of it. And and I, I think that's right. Sorry. Sorry. I, I think that's super valuable because we would talk all the time about uh, unless it impacts the customer positively. Let's just be very clear. Unless it impacts yeah. the customer positively, then, then you shouldn't do it. And in the same way as exactly. you know, the, providing the data is great, then you've got to be able to, to take action. And that's where I think you know, smart buildings have a great future and there's lots to do. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I would definitely. <laughs> we've, we've all been in very long meetings. Now we can debate whether the meeting should have been as long, yeah, um, yeah. but the ability to still make really sound decisions at the end of that meeting, as, as well as the beginning, you know, where do I sign up for that? Yeah, and I think that the sort of the place where we're going is that again, similar to you guys, we've sort of dealt with things where you can look in the past. So audit logs. How do you look at data that you've had? You know, how were your meeting rooms performing? We then moved into okay, like what what's the present? You know, what's your, what are the data points now and how can I change things right now? Where we're going is, you know, the future. You know, how can you now look at data that maybe predict what's coming? That's a little bit of sort of the AI ML play where maybe we can start to incorporate indirect quality data, weather data, traffic data, all of these different inputs in order to do things like expected occupancy. Because especially in the sort of modern world now where people want to go into an office when it's less busy maybe, you know, because they want to understand what's the expected occupancy on a Tuesday. Um, we can, we are starting to build some models that will help you to understand what your occupancy will look like given these conditions, which, yeah, I think once you can tie together past, present and future, that's sort of how you, you've got a whole picture of what your building is doing, looks like. And, uh, and I think that the confidence thing plays very much in there as well, because it, you know, given that many of these decisions are in, in you know, 
property are, are significant investment decisions. Whether you own or lease the building, doesn't, it doesn't matter. We're still talking about large sums of money. And so therefore, understanding how you can sweat that asset effectively yeah. You know, and again, you don't like the risk of giving up your twenty-person conference uh, your conference room mm -hmm. is okay as long as you know it's going to be there when you need it. And back to that, yeah. that confidence and your, I guess, that data gives people that. Yes, yeah. I mean, the, 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 there are some, you know, in terms of sweating the, the asset. Then actually, there's there's so many um, just purely capital benefits of actually doing this because you can get um, uh, you can get accreditation basically to see how your uh, space is performing. So we work with a company quite a lot called Air Rated. Um, that basically rate how good your air is in a space, and you can. It has been proven that that will increase the value of your building because people now want to actually work in buildings that, you know, have good air. Have good air. Like it sounds so, you know, it sounds simple and basic, right? But it's um, if you can at least prove it, and you've got a certification that shows that this is a good space to be in, people are willing to pay for that. Um, and so yeah, we can sort of help help facilitate those things. Sounds like you guys have got a thriving business ahead of you in that growth as well, right? We all, yeah. we all care more about those things all the time. Yeah. Cool, right, okay, so I think Chloe is prepared some, some quick-fire questions now. Uh, these, these are the ones that I... Brace, brace, yeah, brace, brace. I don't think you actually saw these ones before you uh, came. No, so, no, we didn't prepare uh, for these ones. Yeah, I mean, these ones are relatively easy. Oh, right. <laughs> um, I guess we'll do, we'll go with Nick first. Like, what, what was your first job? Ooh. So uh, I was a Windows sysadmin, yeah, and so I was literally taking care of like desktops uh, at at a large um, medical company. Mm -hmm. So it was literally a help desk. You know, I was answering phones and playing video games when I wasn't. I shouldn't say that, but uh, you uh, know, I, I think I think I think you'd be on the statute of limitations now. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> lot, lot, lots of fixing desktops, lots of fixing laptops, and uh, literally started started life there. Absolutely. Yeah. Pretty much one of my first jobs was um, setting up Windows machines for a that was basically a sewage company. Yeah. Um, and uh, I had to rewrite how to install Windows because their instructions that was not how you installed Windows. I was like, how can you have in in instructions on how to install something and that doesn't wrong. install something? Like it's oh. a, it's a set of steps. <laughs> uh, this, should, this should be easy. Yeah. But, uh, so, yeah. Um, and what, what about you, Stephen? I'm not sure whether a paper round counts, but that was you know that was the first point in time when I first time I, you got paid. I got paid, um, you know, outside of obviously doing chores around the house. Uh, I, I guess my first uh, full-time job, mm -hmm. um, I worked for a DOS-based. Yes, I just said it. Um, I know it's hard to believe uh, a DOS-based fleet management software company. Mm. Oh. Yeah, yeah, very uh, cool. Back in the day. Oh, um, but uh, yeah, my, my first job was a, was a paper round, but my first full-time job was for a, a DOS-based fleet management software company. Uh, suffice right. to say, they're not still around. <laughs> <laughs> um, we'll start with you this time, Stephen. When slash where do you feel you're most, most productive? Um, running. Running? Yeah, I, um, I think it's, uh, it's my thinking time. Mm. Um, and so uh, you know, people who've worked with me for a long time will always know when I've been for a run. Because I'll yep. get back and there'll just be this glory of, hey, I've had this idea. It normally starts like that. And then there's normally a uh, an emoji that comes back. <laughs> slightly scared, slightly nervous. Yeah. Tell me more. Yeah. So definitely when I'm running. Our new uh, chief of staff actually is the same thing. Yeah. She, she also, you need big problems to be fixed. Go for a run. I'm going to go for a run. That's awesome. Mine's a little different. I'd say it'd be right here. Yeah. Uh, in a meeting room, on a whiteboard. You know, when we can take the hardest problems and break them down to, to the why, 
yeah. and really whiteboard and understand. Like that's where I think I, I tend to do some of my best work, mm -hmm. uh, which is why I get so passionate about the whiteboard. Yeah. There we go. <laughs> uh, it, it <laughs> Gotta is, make it happen. That's the one thing that was really hard, uh, you know, like I said BC, so before COVID we could do this on a whiteboard, oh, but no. during was, yeah, it's a little little harder. It was so yeah, yeah. like doing it when you've got a load of like faces staring at you and you're like Probably. trying to get I'm people trying to write this, oh. and it just yeah. When you can sit there back and forth and both have a sharpie or you know both have a dry erase marker and go at it and, and really get to ideas, I think. You know, that's probably something, something yeah. more solid. My, my team always have like lots on how, like how many minutes can I get into a meeting before I stand up and start drawing? <laughs> like, I can't believe I haven't already. Yeah. But, but hey, and just to everybody who's you know watching now, um, if you have a whiteboard pen that is finished, please, please, please put it in the bin. Like, I, I, sorry, just like, please put it in the bin. We're, all, we're huge whiteboard fans, as you can tell. And this was actually the one question I did warn you about, <laughs> but uh, other than harness, harness is not allowed. Harness not allowed. Um, what's the favorite place you've worked at? Sure. Uh, I worked at a company called Early Warning and yeah. they actually secure all the financial institutions in the United States. And so talk about being passionate about what you do. You literally are preventing fraud. You're keeping people's bank accounts safe. Mm. And so you're, but the amount of data you're looking, I mean, you're looking at every part and piece of, of, of an individual, including their cellular data, the, the information from their passports, from their IDs, and then all their banking. And so you have this responsibility, but with that, you can do amazing things. And so I genuinely, I learned so much there of what has become, you know, my career. I absolutely it was a company called Early Warning. They're owned by the banks, owned yeah. by every large bank in the states. But I, I loved it. I, it was hard to leave. Let's put it that way. Um, really, There's so really many cool software paradigms that have come from that yeah. world, like yeah. all the event, like basically event-based stuff that yes. we do. It's all from there. All from it's the so cool. Yeah, um, we were doing. I could talk about that for another two hours. <laughs> season three. Yeah. yeah, I was gonna say. Yeah, yeah. We'll have to do next next season. We'll do that. One. Yeah. And what, what do I use to? I'm going to give two. That's okay. That's fine. There's no rules. Okay, perfect. <laughs> um, uh, kind of in the, the tech world, uh, I would um, probably say outside of finance, obviously, mm -hmm. um, would be Tavera. I mean, I joined as employee yeah. number seven in Europe. Um, and when I left, we were about 800 people in Europe. And um, we, we built the European business of customers in 65 countries. And it was mm -hmm. fun. And we went through the raises and the IPO and mergers and, and stuff like that. So that was a fun and a hugely learning experience. And, and But really, the, the most exciting thing about that was the finally the opportunity for organizations to, to get value out of their data in a timely fashion. You yeah. know, like people had talked about customer 360 for decades and decades and decades. But it was just too expensive and took too long and we didn't know whether it was going to be meaningful. Yeah. So the opportunity to do that and see the impact of that on customers was, was huge. You know, bring data sets together cost effectively and get some insights you can then take action on yeah. was just massive. So that would be from a tech perspective outside of Harness and, you know, we're, we're, we're having some fun in Harness. That's great. And we'll look to see where that goes over the next few years. Um, also, a, a few years ago, I decided to take some time out of corporate life mm -hmm. and I, um, I went sailing. For, for work, yeah. So I, uh, so that was the the best place I've worked, which yeah. would be on a on a sailboat uh, in the middle of the Atlantic. I yeah. was probably. Yeah. So, uh, I already know the answer to this to this question, which is when you're not working, how you spend your time. Yeah. So I, I already know that one. But, just but sailing for the audience. and so it's definitely sailing and uh, and doing fun stuff with uh, with the family. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. And how, and how about you, Nick? Uh, I love traveling, and mm. actually, I, I feel kind of criminal. So in 2020. We went and saw 40, 
44 of the 50 United States with my family. We took our RV. Which ones you missed out? So I missed the southern, the southern <laughs> yeah, because they were having hurricanes, and I don't want to. I don't want to be one of those, uh, you know, mobile homes that gets picked up in a yeah, hurricane. Yeah. I figured that'd be a bad, bad, bad piece. But since that, I mean, we missed that in Alaska, you know, which. Different set of challenges. Different set of challenges, but no. Um, Love traveling, seeing things. It's it's one of my passions. Is you know getting out and about. And, I mean, heck, even here in the weekend, I'm gonna I'm gonna go get in a car and just drive the countryside. So, yeah, absolutely. And this one is normally a question where you know <laughs> I think I already know what you'll say. <laughs> so, do do you think all buildings should be smart? Absolutely, like no question. The fact that we have we live in a day and age where we're not using all. I mean. The amount of IoT data that we can use and actually take action on is mm. massive. And the fact that we're not is just wasted money. It's genuinely, it's waste. And so doing anything inefficiently is waste. And so do it if you're going to do it, do it efficiently. And I think, yeah, it has to be something. And, and we have to want it as a, as a, as a people, mm -hmm. um, but there's no reason it shouldn't be. I, I, yeah, I agree 100%. And yeah. of course, you know, from a sustainability perspective, like it's it's... And I, again, I think from a, an employer um, who you know, I think has an accountability and a responsibility, you know, yeah. like from a building's perspective, that, uh, and I think that's, again, a differentiator for, for recruitment. Yeah. Because um, we, we have so much technology available to us if we used it in the right way at the right time, and smart buildings are a great example of where we can have a meaningful impact from an environmental perspective that we, we, we need to run much faster than we are. Yeah. I mean, and I'm going to even tack on that again. I mean, you think about it, like just the fact that we now have, you know, smart switches that'll yeah. turn the lights off to, again, save energy. These are the types of things we should be doing in all facets of life. We talk about shutting on servers, right? We should not be running these massive workloads and all these things when they don't need to be. And so that efficiency piece, it crosses everywhere, not just through your light switches and not just your air conditioning, but through everything. I mean, it's a finite set of resources that we're burning. Yeah, and then let's 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 burn as little of them as even. And again, as long as people have got the confidence that it's going to be there when they need it, yeah. right? I, I walk into the room and the lights come lights on. That's a simple example. Yep. it's all good. We're good. Yeah. yeah. So I was talking. My, I was out with my grandparents last night, um, and uh, they were asking me. You know, it was like, what do you think the next sort of technical shift will be? You know, what's the next technological thing? And I was like, if I knew that, then I'd be making. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, but I actually think that in terms of a paradigm shift then actually we've been in a phase for the last you know, 100 years or more where it's all been more, 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 more. You know, everything's about being, you know, more resources, bigger buildings, more office space, everything, everything, everything. I think that really we've got to go through a bit of a phase of how we utilize the stuff we've already got better. Like how do we actually have a little bit less but still get exact, you know, similar lifestyles that we, we're now used to and it's very hard to take things away from people. But how do you just make it just a little bit more efficient, even if it's just a little bit. <laughs> One percent efficiency gain in this space you know, yeah. dramatically changes markets. Yeah, cumulative effect. So yeah, it's very significant. Yeah. Um, so finally, um, knowing what you know now, what advice would you give to your younger self? Always a tough one. <laughs> I mean, it's so and that doesn't need to be business; it can be anything. Like free, free reign. Respect your elders. Um, <laughs> Too easy, sorry. That's way really too easy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think that, um, I, I, and it's a little bit of a cliche, but I, I think, you know, I've got I've got two daughters. Yeah. Um, and so for me, um, and, and uh, is that you can do anything you want to if you put your mind to it. 
Um, and um, so I'm a you know, big believer in, in diversity and inclusion. Nobody has the best IP uh, on ideas or the, you know, the right to anything. Like it, it should be earned um, and will be better if we collaborate. And so um, for me, it would be the, um, you know, the, the, have the confidence to do what you believe is the right thing. You know, have a strong moral compass and, and, uh, and never give up. As I say to my kids, you know, you just can't do it yet. Yeah. Uh, yeah, really important part of that. So I, I think that, um, and, I, and we see change, it's just not changed fast enough mm -hmm. from that perspective. So I think uh, believe in what's right and you can cheat. I love that. My uh, my kids, we say Durkin's never quit. And that's so sort of your point. But uh, I think there, there are two things. Sounds like something from Game of Thrones. Right, it's, that's it. <laughs> the, um, the things that I always, you know, I wish I would have known younger. One was treat everyone like a friend. Mm -hmm. And in this, this in, 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 not just in work and business, but just everyone like a friend. And I think you, you can learn so much about people. You can, you can gain so much from that. And then even in the corporate environment, uh, one thing I learned, and I learned it from my father, but I learned it too late in life, which is treat everyone like the CEO. If you treat everyone from the front desk all the way through with the same respect that you would the CEO, whenever your name's spoken, guaranteed it will be in positive light. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and I wish I would have heard that one earlier. <laughs> yeah, I might have made some of those, I might call them CLMs, those career limiting moves yeah. at some point in yeah. time that I probably wouldn't have if I had to follow those. That's so. a great, great advice. Yeah. <laughs> we, yeah. we, you know, we're all suddenly reflecting on the yeah, yeah, let's those that. comments okay. that we might have made or uh, you know, silly things that we've done. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Cool. What about you on that one? What advice? <laughs> yeah, what, about, what advice do you give yourself? Flipping a bank account. Why not? It's a season finale. I mean, I come mean, on. Yeah, true, true. You were ready um, for that one. I wasn't. I know. Um, I think it would like be more patient. You know, I'm a trim, some way it's like in some ways it helps you um, being <laughs> relatively impatient to get like where you want to go. Sometimes it's helpful. However, most of the time you don't need to be impatient. You know, what will be will be. Um, you just need to, similar to what you were saying, you know, you gotta, you gotta believe in yourself, but be patient. You know, focus on what you're trying to do, and don't, don't just try and sprint all the time because it's tiring. <laughs> and can, I, can I build on that just, yeah. just briefly? Um, I think added to that, which is tied to patience for me, is um, is understanding, and, and so I'd say to my kids, I think, or my younger self, um, generally people come to a conversation with positive intent. Yeah. Um, and if somebody says no, it might be that they've got different information to you. And rather than be impatient and you know, determine this is the answer, <laughs> and I'm gonna, I'm gonna keep going at it until you agree with me, mm -hmm. um, actually understanding the person's perspective and that they're at the table with positive intent. And I think often that's overlooked. Which, which I mentioned it because I think it's tied to patience a little bit because you've determined an outcome in your mind yep. and then someone said no. And it's like, but why not? <laughs> and it, it can be hard though because sometimes actually it's a really good way of getting stuff done. Like actually being impatient, moving things as quickly as possible. If you if you early on, if that is successful for you, yeah. you'll follow you know, that pattern. You'll follow that and pattern. That could be that, and that's the risk. That's risky. You know, and that that can work in small groups, but it, as as things get larger and, yeah. and your impact gets bigger, I I can use a bit of that patience myself. And as we say, you never fast and don't break things. That's it. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's probably a good note. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So anyway, 
Thank, thank you, guys. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Um, and uh, yeah, I hope everyone enjoyed the conversation. I had a great time. <laughs> um, all the episodes of both season one, season two are on Spotify and YouTube. So if anyone wants to go and listen to previous ones, then they're all there. And we will be, I think, returning sometime around January, February kind of time. Um, but yeah, thank you, everyone, for listening. Thanks, guys, again. Absolutely. And we'll Thanks for having us. And we gave you a sneak preview to some topics that are coming up. Yeah. <laughs> Don't forget about the whiteboard. <laughs> See you all soon. All right. Bye -bye. Thanks. Bye-bye.